Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Justin Ongchen. And I'm Baron Zhang. Today we're sitting down with Bob Simons. Hey everyone, Nathaniel here, jumping in from the void to fill the intro. Bob Simons is founder and chairman of SDX Entertainment, a media entrepreneur and a prolific film producer. After graduating summa cum laude from Yale University in 1985, Simons quickly built a career as one of Hollywood's youngest and most profitable creative producers. With his individual productions grossing over $6 billion in worldwide revenue, he boasted one of the highest ROIs of any major studio producer and has been featured in The Hollywood Reporter's 100 Most Powerful People in Entertainment, Variety 500 Entertainment Leaders and Icons, and Variety's Dealmakers Impact Report. Simons is currently focused on e-commerce, Web3 infrastructure, machine learning, assisted storytelling, AI-focused marketing tools, and other derivative applications of the commercial content he is making. That's all for me. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Super glad to be here. Awesome. So I guess I'll just start off. Um, So for me, I've always been fascinated with film and media as just a medium for you know, changing belief, changing culture. I just think it's so powerful. That's kind of what I've, I've always been interested in it. I was just curious to um, know kind of what got you started off in it, paint me a picture, kind of coming out of college, what, what, what were your peers doing? What were you thinking? What kind of made you kind of want to pursue um, production? So when I first started out, it was interesting because most of my friends went into banking and into sort of really important stuff. <laughs> and I just kind of wanted to laugh. Right. Um, and found myself really lucky, got a job as a low-level creative executive uh, at the time at MGM. Mm-hmm. And um, when they changed regimes, without, uh, without, and again, I had no power. I had no ability to actually get anything done. But I was able to sit in these rooms and watch decisions get made and sort of scratch my head at how chaotic the decision-making was and how emotional and gut-driven it was. Um, but when they changed regimes, I was going to get fired. And I decided, no, you know what? The job of producer looks really cool and really fun because I can't write, I can't, um, I can't act, I can't direct. Um, I don't really have any of those kind of marketable skills. So you become a producer, which means you get to orchestrate kind of everybody else. But I knew that if I had gone off on my own, um, and said, I'm going to be a producer because when you, when you, when you start out, you want to make Lawrence of Arabia and Godfather and these really mm-hmm. profound, Glasses. culturally impactful movies. But I knew at 23 years old that if I did that and I was lucky enough to get something made, I'd get replaced because, you know, you need a real producer for a real budget or you'd need a real producer if you were having a real movie star. So instead, I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to focus on high-concept, low-budget comedies aimed at the teen market because my competitive advantage was to look at the executives who were 30 years older than me and say, you know what? I'm, I'm close to being a teen. I know what they want to see. Trust me on this. Oh, by the way, it's not a $50 million movie. It's a $10 million movie. So I can't screw up too much. Oh, and it doesn't actually have a big, expensive movie star in it who's going to run roughshod all over the production. It's a high-concept movie, meaning the idea is the sell, so I can get young comedians coming off of Saturday Night Live and things like that. So ultimately, I wish I could say it was something more elegant, but I basically started producing 
high-concept, low-budget comedies so that I couldn't get fired as a producer. And in doing that, I got traction and movies beget movies and I just kept making them as fast as I could and uh, I got lucky. I mean, I was for a good decade the most, uh, the most profitable comedy producer in the world for a long time. And beginning at like such a young age, how did you kind of market yourself when perhaps people wouldn't like listen to you, didn't have the, um, the establishment, the credibility yet? It was, it was a great question. And what I was trying to get at with my sort of not so strong answer was that I knew that my competitive advantage was my age. Mm. So instead of it being, I have no experience, I don't know what I'm doing. By the way, I had no experience. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was young. That should be horrible. Not if you're making movies for young people and you're explaining to the executives, you're old, you're successful, you're rich, you don't know what they want to see. I do, you know? And part of, especially with teen comedy, is that it's a different language. So when you're doing teen comedies, you use shock as, uh, because think of this way, teens don't have money, they don't have power, they don't have social status, they don't have any of the normal weapons. All they have is shock. And that's something you could play into. So a lot of people would say, well, these movies are crude or these Adam Sandler movies are whatever or these Dave Chappelle movies are whatever. No, these are guys who actually knew how to speak to the language of their audience. So that was that. That's awesome. Thank, thanks for sharing. Yeah, that's very interesting. It definitely seems like you found a formula for success early on. And as someone who's really interested in business but also an avid movie watcher, it Really, like as I was researching for this podcast, it was really interesting to learn more about the film production process and the parallel that it has to businesses, whether it's the financing, the funding, the distribution, and the marketing side. So uh, on that front, uh, you mentioned that early on you had a competitive advantage, which you mentioned was your youth and understanding of the teenage audience demographic. But as you progressed and gained more success, what do you think were the key factors that helped you maintain that level of success and ultimately be able to uh, found your own company in STX? It's a great question. So what I realized working inside a studio system, was the small niche that I had carved out gave me certain credibility with the studios who were at the time, but this is before I financed my own stuff, the studios were financing my things. And what I realized is that a lot of the talent that I had worked with originally, based on the success of these movies, had actually become really big movie stars. So I may have paid them $500,000, a million dollars. These guys were commanding $20 million paydays. Mm. And a lot of them were. So you could then go to the studio and say, you know what? I got this guy. He's my 800-pound gorilla. He's my hammer. And I'm going to build movies around his voice, his audience and his brand. So I then started retrofitting my model to basically say, if you're a Steve Martin or a Chappelle or Adam Sandler or a Chris Farley or whoever, you have a very different voice and you have a very different audience. And what makes you funny is very different. What makes Robin, what made Robin Williams, who I think is an alum from here, what made Robin Williams funny is very different than what makes Steve Martin funny. Mm -hmm. But you can build a movie around their sensibility. So what I did was I changed my model to basically building films around their voice. And um, that was actually far, even far more successful mm -hmm. because it was a way of cutting through all of the chaos and noise that you get. When you make a movie, people don't realize as counterintuitive as it is that actors don't want to act, 
Writers don't want to write. Directors don't want to direct. It's a, it's a miracle that anything actually gets made. So we always talk about it as willing something into being. And if you have um, on your arm this, this, this force of nature, you can, you can cut through a lot of noise and get things done. So I carried that philosophy out into um, doing STX. So STX stood for S was Simons, T was TPG, which was my uh, one of my backers. They're a hundred and twenty billion dollar um, series of funds, wow. and uh, X is it was a big experiment, and the experiment was can you build mid range movies around talent that the the major studios can't do. They couldn't actually make a twenty million dollar Hustlers or a $20 million upside with Kevin Hart. They couldn't make, you know, um, The Gentleman or Bad Moms or Molly's Game because it cost them 60 or $70 million on top of your budget to make the movie, to, to market the movie, right? But my attitude was, no, no, no. If it's a star, they have a identifiable fan base. Mm -hmm. So instead of spending $70 million on a film telling everybody about it, what if we could actually spend $20 million telling Kevin Hart's fans or Will Smith's fans or Adam, the, or the star's fans that this movie exists? And that was ultimately why we created STX. So the marketing kind of <clears throat> does itself by having that, that personal brand. Correct, yeah. But people didn't, don't realize is that if you're a major studio, your, your distribution and marketing system is built towards shoving your film down the throat of every man, woman, and child all over the world. And that's expensive, and they're really good at it. But um, if you make a $20 million film, not a $200 million film, right? $20 film, you don't want that, you don't want that cost and that beast pushing the $20 million film because what happens is you now need to make, you don't need to make $30 million to be profitable. You need to make $70 million to be profitable. So what you find is you start losing money on movies that should be really profitable. So... Were there any challenges kind of working with uh, uh, comparatively such a low budget or um, was were most of the budget that, you know, big movies use, go, does that go to marketing? Great question. So, no. What I found is that um, when I was focusing on comedies that I had an expression that, that money is the enemy of comedy because when people, you know, comedy is visceral, it's blunt, it's not elegant. And what I found was that when we had more money to spend, we were spending it on the look, on the performances, on the, all the things that were taking you away from that, that really brutal, snap, snap the joke kind of, um, kind of experience. So, no, I actually found that oftentimes when we had very little money, those were, the, 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 those, those were some of my favorite movies. I mean, I even go back to when I was doing things like Wedding Singer and Half-Baked. I mean, Wedding Singer, I made for one quarter what the studio thought it could be made at its lowest budget. And we just, we pulled together and we, we did it on the fly and we just made each other laugh and I really liked the film. It's, it's, you've definitely kind of employed that, like the 20-80 rule or 20% of... Well, like 20% of what you put in makes 80% of the impact. I was kind of like mm. curious what specifically like you prioritize that budget on with within the comedies. Uh, the, the set pieces. So what I'll do is I'll look at a movie and I'll say, you know what, um, I've got to open this film. And at the time, it was going to be a combination of a two-minute trailer and a 30-second TV spot. 
So I looked at it and I said, what are the sets, set pieces, what are the comic set pieces that I know I'm going to use in the TV spots and in the trailer? And I've put more money and energy behind those and I took from the other ones. So I, I at least knew that I was throwing money, the money that I had, behind things that I was going to use to tell people about the movie. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully, you know, the movie itself worked. And it definitely seems like you had a well-thought-out strategy and you were able to um, garner your team to execute on those strategies very well. And um, I'm curious, do you think that part of that can be attributed to your um, relative status as an outsider early on? So you were able to bring a different perspective into the different processes and manage to, in a sense, uh, revolutionize the process. Do you, would you agree? It's a really interesting take. You guys are good, by the way. <laughs> I mean, your, your questions are really good. Thank you. Um, and insightful because... Part of the craziness is, and even at my age, I carry that chip on my shoulder of being the outsider. You know, I talk to my wife about this all the time. I can't read reviews. I don't read the trades. I don't want to know what anybody else is doing. And part of that was because when you're young and you're looking for somebody to tell you that what you're doing is good, um, it's a brutal, it's a humiliating, brutal experience when all of the critics are saying, literally, I read a review once that said, somebody please take his financing away and make him stop. And, and Adam Sandler would stop reading reviews because he was, he was pouring himself into stuff and the reviews were profoundly negative. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a national treasure. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, you, you go, it's a bit cute to say, oh, no, they don't get it. No, it's not that. It's just you're trying to do something differently. You're speaking to an audience that, by definition, doesn't share the same values that the critics do. Right. But it still hurts. So what you do is you shut them out. You just shut out the noise. You just say, I'm not going to do this because otherwise I'm not going to do it. If I'm actually listening to other people, I don't want to do this. So what you build is a little bit of an echo chamber, which can be dangerous, but you build a little bit of an echo chamber and you surround yourself with people whose sensibility you trust mm -hmm. and people who you groove on and you try to push through that way. And it's an echo chamber, but not like, not the general echo chamber that everyone else is doing. It's, it's yeah, I mean, what, what's funny that, that uh, not to pontificate about Hollywood right now, but it's, it's become very difficult in Hollywood because the echo chamber that is Hollywood is voting for movies that, I mean, over the last few years, it's become very difficult to even watch or finish these movies that are being nominated for Academy Awards. They're just not entertaining. Right. But in the echo chamber, they're getting lauded. So I think there's a disconnect between culture and the people who make it. That's the bad echo chamber. The bad echo chamber. Yeah. What do you think exactly in that bad, bad echo chamber is kind of making people not finish the movies? Like what, what facts, what aspect of those movies that's being replicated again and again? So um, when we would make movies for a theatrical experience, if somebody walked out of the film, it was traumatizing and rare. And I've made some really bad movies, but it was even rare that somebody didn't finish the experience because they had gotten out of the house, they'd driven across town, they paid money for it, and God damn it, they're going to they're gonna ride this thing out. So they finished it. Right now, I think streaming has been great for content, especially for um, long-form binge stuff, so six, seven episodes, really quality characters, really interesting stuff. But it's, it's very easy to watch something, turn it off, come back, watch it, come back, turn it off, 
and they just not even finish it. Mm. And from a streamer standpoint, they don't count that. They count this. If you watch it for two minutes, I think it's maybe now down to one minute. If you watch it for one minute, that's considered a view because it means you didn't click on it by mistake. It's very low, yeah. But again, well, they're playing a different game. Mm -hmm. They're about subscribers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're about you paying to stay hooked on on what they give you as opposed to theatrical where you're, and again, I'm making on both sides. You know, I've got four movies that I'm making directly for Netflix, one directly for Amazon right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's great. And I love the projects. They've all got major stars attached, but it's a different, it's a different experience than when you're making something that um, is designed for a theatrical experience. Because again, also as a producer, I make something for Netflix, I get paid or I get paid, mm -hmm. right? I, I make money. If it's good, I make money. If it's bad, it doesn't matter. But you want it to make you want it to be good. You make a, you make a movie theatrically, and it doesn't work. Mm. You know you can you can still take it in the teeth. Right. So what theatrical or not? What are, what are your favorite uh, shows or movies that you've you've produced and been, been a part of? Recently, I really liked The Gentleman, um, which is a uh, which is a thing I did with the. Um, Guy Ritchie, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of Hustlers, which I also did for um, for boys. I, th I thought it was really good. I liked Bad Moms 1. Um, I liked parts of Molly's Game. I liked Mauritanian, which was a small movie. I liked uh, Den of Thieves. Uh, I liked um, some upcoming movies. I've got one coming out in March, uh, with, and also with Guy Ritchie that Jason Statham stars in. But, you know, I like... I just like those ones that just kind of have a purity to them. They they know what they are, and they're there to entertain. <coughs> Not pretending to be anything else, kind of thing. They just they just have a they have a point of view, and they're confident in their point of view. I think that's actually a really important thing. You know, you can tell when movies have been muddled by committee. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, those are some of the things I've, I like recently. And going back, you know, obviously I like this Adam Sandler movies. You know. Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy, Big Daddy. Classics. Um, I like a lot of the stuff I did with Steve Martin, like Cheaper by the Dozen and, and Pink Panther. But I, I think it's partly also because while I like the movie, I really, I really like the guys who were who making the movie, which made things really good. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, speaking of, uh, we mentioned streaming and how there have been trends in streaming and how that's affected the movie production process. Uh, I understand STX was quite early in 2014 and onwards had partnership with various uh, international film studios and also uh, funded by um, international companies. I was wondering, um, what did you see in the international market? What trends, what prompted you and drew you to uh, do that? And um, how do you think that has changed now, if at all? So when I formed STX, um, part of it was about making mid-range star-driven movies and figuring out the marketing. And being a studio, meaning we don't just make the movie, which anybody can do. Anybody can make a movie. Mm -hmm. But the difference between a production company and a studio is the studio also markets and distributes. That was part of it. But another part was that China's market was really opening up and wanted to be one of the first um, Hollywood bridges making um, global content for China. So took investments from Tencent, Alibaba, Lenovo, PCCW, Huayi, um, and um, had the number one TV show in China for a while called Tohao Jingxi, which um, was a really interesting learning experience for me, but it was, it was, it was great. Um, but what ended up happening was as we were 
gearing up to actually go public on the Hong Kong, the Chinese market started to collapse. And these things are cyclical. This is what happens. But it was the beginning of a long winter. In fact, one of my investors, Tencent, lost about $200 billion in market cap, $200 billion US in market cap about two weeks before I was supposed to list. And we just said, let's, let's pull it. <clears throat> so part of the original intention of bridging US and China um, changed on, macro, on, on a macro level, at which point we then said, okay, let's, let's focus on other parts of the world. In this case, we were listening, let's focus on India, mm -hmm. which was also, a, I think, a huge opportunity. I just made some bad decisions there. So we're running a little low in time, so this will be our, our, our final question. Um, I was just curious, like, what advice do you have for students interested in pursuing a career in film industry as producers or, or in other capacities? Um, I know you kind of uh, mentioned, uh, you know, the comedy and being in yeah. touch with, you know, <clears throat> so this I mean, age. And I was wondering so if that's the whole. I would, I would say this. I'd say, you know. The one thing I, the one minor thing I think I might have gotten right when I was starting out was despite me pretending like my age was a plus or this was a plus, in reality, I knew I was a liability. And what I would do is I would come up with an idea that I thought was a really good idea for a movie. And I'd kind of flesh that idea out the best I could. And then I would go to the writers that the studios were dying to be in business with. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there are there there are groups that that networks, streamers, studios are actually dying to be in business with, and I would finagle a meeting with them, and I would give them the idea. I'd say it's yours. If you like the idea, it's yours. Here's what I've got. You can use it or not use it, but it's yours 100. Mm -hmm. Let's go get you paid, because they want to be in business with you. You want to get paid. You can't seem to come up with an idea yourself. Let's go in together, and all I ask is that as the liability. I get attached as a producer. So I get attached as a producer. doesn't affect you. Don't want any of your economics. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that enough to get enough deals going and enough traction mm -hmm. that you wake up one morning and you find yourself relevant. Um, but I would say that there's some version of that also, which is be, be, be fine giving away your ideas. Be fine. Because ideas don't matter. None of it matters. It's just can you will it into being? That's really all that matters. There's so many people with great ideas. It is irrelevant. It's about execution. It's a, and in this case, it was I gave away the idea instead of people trying to protect the idea in order to get tied to the people who could actually execute it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you guys, your questions are great, by the way. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all the advice. Unfortunately, yeah, that is all the time we have today. But to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> and thank you again. Thanks, guys. Good job.